0: Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariasche. My guest today is Israeli statesman and former ambassador, Danny Danone, Israel's permanent representative to the United Nations from 2015 to 2020. We'll be speaking about his upcoming book In the Lion's Den, Israel and the World, the events that have shaped his career in public service thus far, and why he views Israel as an increasingly major player on the world stage. But first, one brief reminder, check out our series, Conversations with B'nai B'rith and all of our interviews on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with diplomats, historians, Holocaust survivors, Middle East experts, even the first Jewish American male astronaut in space. And get our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at B'nai B'rith International. What is it like to represent Israel on the world stage? Former Ambassador Danny Danone has insights few can rival. He spent five years as Israel's permanent representative to the United Nations, a necessary but complex place for Jews and the state of Israel, and an institution known for its systemic bias against the Jewish state. In his upcoming book, In the Lion's Den, Israel and the World, Ambassador Danone shares his experiences on the front lines of Israel's global presence, his commitment to the Jewish state through public service, and key moments from his time representing his country at the world body. Today, Ambassador Danone is here to speak about In the Lion's Den, including his ideas for an Israeli policy agenda that could make it an even greater contributor to global peace and prosperity. Prior to his UN role, Ambassador Danone was a member of Knesset for the Likud Party from 2009 until 2015. He served as Deputy Speaker of the 18th Knesset, and he's also served as Deputy Minister of Defense and Minister of Science, Technology, and Space. Ambassador Danone, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dan. Well, let's start before the UN, which is your career in public service. And I'd like to ask you, what is it that inspired you uh, to get involved? And uh, what was it about public service that appealed to you? And why have you dedicated your entire career to it? So,
1: you know, I discuss it in in the book uh, at the early ages when I grew up in uh, Ramat Gan, and and I started to to learn about the geography of Israel and uh, to wonder about uh, the history of Israel you know, I got it for my late father, who was wounded in the war of attrition, and he wasn't able to travel with me, but he always encouraged me to get out and, and see the country. So, I, you know, I was 11, 12 years old, and I would walk and uh, uh, join trips, you know, by myself with the other uh, youth that I, w- I wasn't familiar with. And actually, through knowing the land, I got to know the history of Israel. And I read a lot about the Israeli undergrounds, about the... You know, pre-independence uh, era, and that got me excited. Uh, and with that excitement, it led me to be involved. Uh, involved in school, in, uh, I remember myself as a young child debating my teachers about uh, the undergrounds and about uh, the Altalena, uh, who was right, Menachem Begin or David ben Gurion. And today I asked myself, you know, I, I was like 11 years old. Why would I argue with my teacher about it? But, but that's what happened. And uh, when I got into high school, it became more uh, political. So that's where I was started to promote uh, my ideas with my colleagues. And, and we had like political activities in high school. Uh, when I joined the military, I had to put that on hold. Uh, I finished my service uh, at the rank of the lieutenant. And when I, the first day, you know, I finished the military service, I remember that. I went to register to the Likud party, you know, I didn't sing twice, you know, and I became a member. And, and slowly I became more involved with Zionist education, with the Vitalyist movement, and, and that led me to, to public life and public service. But uh, it all started by hiking. I still like to hike today. I take my kids. You know, I, I love hiking in Israel uh,
0: to see the land, to know the land. But it, all, it also seems that you had a pretty good sense of the diaspora and the, the, the global Jewish community, um, and not, not just the surroundings that you found yourself in in Israel.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It also started in high school. You know, unfortunately, most Israelis are not knowledgeable enough about the diaspora. Uh, I was lucky that uh, I was chosen to represent my high school uh, and to visit the Jewish communities abroad. Uh, We visited uh, the New York area, Chicago, and Montreal at the age of 16. That was my first experience with the diaspora Jews. And I got excited to make the connections, to, to get to know other communities, uh, other uh, streams of the Jewish religion and for me it was very very interesting uh, and I kept involved for all those years. I was an emissary of the Jewish Agency for a few years in Florida and also when I was in the Knesset, you know I was always always involved with the uh, Jewish uh, issues so whether it's you know hosting delegations or promotion or promoting legislation and funny enough then you know but you know in the Knesset you have committees and I was very strong in the party back then when I was in the Knesset, and you can choose which committee to head. And when I got the option to choose a committee, I chose to become the chairman of the immigration and absorption committee of the Knesset. And some people ask me, why you do that? You you can take other committees, which seems more prestigious. And I said, no, for me, to deal with uh, New Orleans and, and for Jews all around the world, it, it, can be, it will be the best position I can imagine. And I was very happy with uh, the choice uh, I made. So yes, you know, I think it all starts uh, at a very young age. And that's why I think today, we have to get our uh, high schoolers involved about Jewish life. And you know, I'm lucky because my kids came with me to, to New York and they spent five years uh, living in New York. Uh, they went to a Jewish day school. They went to summer camp in, in New Hampshire. And, and they still go back to the camp. So they, they were exposed, and I'm sure it will be part of their life. But I think we should do more to expose uh, many, many other Israelis while they are in high school uh, to the Jewish diaspora.
0: Let's talk about the Knesset, because the Knesset is the place. If, if you are you're politically active in any of the parties, uh, this is the place where, where you have to be. Um, now, you served. Uh, you were... Uh, Deputy Minister of Defense, you served as uh, Minister of, of Science, Technology, and, and Space, um, and you you could have stayed and, and just stayed in the Knesset, continued your career there. You decided at a certain point uh, that uh, New York and the United Nations was going to be the next stop. Tell us about that transition, how that happened, and um, the decision that you had to make uh, to leave uh, Israel, uh, and, and the career that you were building there, and to, to get into the lion's den, if I can.
1: So one of the points I, I, I stress in, in my book, in the lion's den, is the issue of passion. Uh, to be passionate about what you are doing. And, and I think that's the key to succeed. And, and when I came to the UN, you know, people told me, it's, it's, you know, you have to be a diplomat, you know, you have to follow protocol. And I brought my passion uh, to Israel into action by you know, creating so many events, making so many friends, bringing 100, more than 100 ambassadors to Israel with me. Uh, and that passion led me to the UN because uh, I was always involved in doing uh, PR as Barak for Israel. And when I, I got the offer from the prime minister uh, to take the position, uh, I didn't think twice. You know, I, I knew it's an opportunity. Uh, I knew I'm passionate about it. Uh, and I told him, listen, I just have to ask my wife about it and uh, if i get the, the green light from a uh, green light from hell that's it you know we we will, we will depart soon and that's what happened uh, and i'm happy because it was a great experience for for me uh, and i'm sure that uh, in the future when i will go back to public life you know the skills and the connection and the knowledge i gained would be very instrumental uh, for my future positions you
0: no know, it's interesting uh, it's uh, it's really such an arena um, this this United Nations uh, system. Um, I remember really as a as a kid uh, watching the debates in the UN and the build up to the Six Day War, um, and and how much opprobrium uh, was was thrown onto uh, to Israel around that Security Council table. Um, I remember, of course, Abba Evan, uh, the 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 great former Foreign Minister of Israel, speaking. Uh, and Jews around the world, uh, I think, at, at that particular point, really became uh, very much aware, acutely aware of, of the importance uh, of the UN. Uh, notwithstanding all of the bias, but of why it's important for Israel to be there. So, the book, your book, focuses on several key moments uh, uh, in your career and your time in New York, <clears throat> representing Israel at the UN. And one example is Resolution 2334, which condemned Israeli settlements in the, quote, Palestinian territories occupied since 1967, including East Jerusalem, close quote. Take us behind the scenes of the days leading up to that vote in December 2016. So as you mentioned, Dan, that was, uh, for me,
1: uh, the lowest moment uh, in my career, because, you know, I'm used to to, uh, fight back and to push back, usually against the Palestinians, uh, Iranians, uh, sometimes the EU. Here I was by myself fighting our closest ally, the U.S. And I have to say one thing, you know, until that decision, the administration, Obama's administration, was very friendly to Israel. Uh, We collaborated, we achieved a lot of things together with uh, Ambassador Samantha Powell, and, uh, you know, we signed an amazing MOU, that we are grateful for that. Uh, but that moment uh, before President Obama left, uh, for me, I will never forget, you know, when I learned that the U.S. is actually behind the scene pushing the resolution. And I was, uh, I was insulted, not by the content of the resolution, which was shameful. You know, it called our presence in the old city of Jerusalem a flagrant violation of international law. I was insulted by, by the way it was done, that uh, instead of coming to us and telling us, listen, We got instructions from the president, he wants to push a resolution about this issue, and that's what we will be doing. The administration chose to do it behind the scenes, not to take our calls. And when I got the information from other colleagues, I called Samantha Powell, and I told her that, we need to know what will be the position of the US. And she was very friendly, and she told me, Danny, I don't know, it's the president who will decide about it, not me. And I told her, okay, let's put the president on a call with the prime minister and we need to get answers. And the answer I got then was that the president was already on a vacation in Hawaii, you know, before Christmas, and he will not take the call. And that moment, you know, before the vote, I realized that I am by myself, but you know, if he's not taking the call, it means that he's not supporting us. And it means that we, and we tried, we tried to lobby we tried to call uh, other countries, uh, but it was very hard. And, and before the vote, when Samantha asked to see me a few minutes before and to give me the official um, uh, notice that the U.S. would abstain, you know, I told her that you know, it's, no one will remember the great things we did together at the U.N. Uh, because people will remember uh, that shameful resolution.
0: Well, I remember that week. I, in fact, I remember I was actually in Israel. And we were watching the speech of Secretary Kerry. And I know I had to go off to an important uh, uh, appointment. And we listened in the car on the way to that, that appointment because that speech um, uh, clearly set the table uh, for, for, this, for this vote. But let me ask you, in the corridors, in, in the places where it's not on the record, what were your colleagues, uh, your counterparts, uh, telling you? What were the other ambassadors when you were discussing this? So, you know, you, you have two
1: groups. You have those who are fighting against you, and that was, you know, mainly uh, Ireland and France, the Palestinians, for sure, the Arab League. They were very active in, in pushing the resolution forward, and you have the bystanders that they were not happy with the resolution. They were not happy with the timing of the resolution because it meant they had to take side between the president elect back then, Donald Trump, and the and, and acting president uh, Obama. And they were not comfortable about it. Uh, I'll tell you a story which was never published, but then uh, the UK, back then, Theresa May was the prime minister. She wanted to actually veto the resolution uh, because she wanted to show president elect that the UK uh, is moving into an, another direction uh, and to build a new relationship with the US. Uh, I was not aware at that time of the the debate that took place in in London. Uh, Had I known that I would have mobilized the prime minister and other friends in the UK, but there was a real debate. And and at the end, the the Minister of Foreign Affairs convinced her not to do that. Uh, And and at the end, the UK supported the resolution. So uh, for anybody, it was not easy, Uh, but uh, President Obama was determined to push it forward. And even uh, countries like Russia, Ukraine, and other members of the Security Council, they wanted to push it uh, and to delay the vote, but uh, the president uh, and the EU uh, players were very determined to make it happen.
0: So what were some of the other moments uh, that stand out to you during your tenure at the UN? As you mentioned in a recent piece in the Jewish Insider, uh, how would you say your Israeli uh, chutzpah helped you to navigate an institution known for its unfair treatment uh, of the Jewish state? Yeah, indeed, you know,
1: uh, chutzpah and courage. You know, when I decided to, to run for a position, and then you and Abnerit, you, you follow the UN for years, you know. And, and you know that for years, we never ran for positions at the UN. We, we played defense. And when I came in, you know, I said, you know, you have elections every few months. Why we never run for positions? And the answer I got was, Danny, you know, we we cannot win at the UN. You know, we we play defense. And I said, no, we should change it. And I I presented my nomination to become the chairman of the legal committee, the sixth committee. Uh, You know, my colleagues in Jerusalem will show that, uh, you know, I lost it. They told me, how can you do that? They even went to the prime minister to complain about it. And I told the prime minister that you know I know to handle uh, elections, and, and he know he knew it from the past. I told him if I feel it's a disaster, I will withdraw my my name, and that's it. But let, let's let's move on. And I walked quietly to gain support. And at the end of the day, that, and that was a very emotional moment uh, in, in the General Assembly. Everybody showed up. Secret ballots. Uh, uh, there was a vote about my my nomination for the chairmanship of the legal committee. And I got the support of 109 uh, member states uh, and only 44 ambassadors voted against me. And for me, it was a great uh, victory, personal victory, but also a great victory for Israel because it showed that actually behind the scenes, uh, the numbers are different. And, and when you call for a secret uh, uh, ballot and you put my name or Israel name for the same, at uh, that case, you get the support of so many countries. And for me, it was a great victory. And for a year, you know, I led the committee and I proved that, you know, any Israeli can be in any position
0: at the UN. Would you say that that really was the beginning of, of this shift? We've also seen a kind of a shift in voting over the last several years, uh, not incremental, uh, nothing major, but we we've started to see some of the. Uh, the yes votes go to abstentions, some of the abstentions go to no votes on all of these anti-Israel resolutions that come up in the General Assembly. Um, w- would you say that that you were present at the creation for that that shift in, in voting?
1: Uh, absolutely. And, it, it, and you say it, it will take time. Uh, we have to think about the long term. Uh, you know, people ask me why the UAE is not voting for Israel. And I explain it, it will not happen overnight. They are still members of the Arab League. They are still, you know, representing the Arab League in the Security Council. We, we cannot expect them all of a sudden to vote with Israel eh, to, eh, immediately. But I saw it with other countries, you know, with major countries like, like Mexico or, or India. You know, when you walk with the ambassadors, when you educate them eh, and you're having a fruitful dialogue, you can do it. And I think the main challenge is to take the great bilateral relations we have with so many countries and to demand more in the multilateral arena. Because when you look at the map, you have embassies in 160 countries. We have strong relations with so many leaders, but when it comes to the UN, you know, they forget about it and they vote against us. So we should ask more and demand more. And that's what I did at the UN.
0: Well, speaking about working relationships at the UN, uh, Nikki Haley, the former U.S. ambassador to the UN, has written the foreword to your book. Uh, she served for two years. You served side by side uh, with her. Um, she herself um, really is speaking out so many times uh, in in defense of the state of Israel and, and to uh, call out the, the treatment it receives at the UN. Tell us about that working relationship. Well, we we had a, a great relationship. Uh, we walked
1: together. You know, I was uh, honored to to escort her on her first visit to Israel after she assumed the position. And then, you know, she came also immediately after resolution 2334. So she felt that she had to to fix and and to correct the damages from that resolution. And we did it, you know, we, we changed the language at the UN, we play offense. And when you look at all the achievements, moving the embassy, pulling out from the Iran deal, Uh, uh, pulling out from the Human Rights Council, recognizing the Golan Heights. We even brought a resolution condemning Hamas to the floor of the General Assembly. Uh, And for me, it was a great success. You know, we we got uh, the majority uh, of the votes, but then they demanded two-thirds, and the resolution didn't pass. But, you know, think about the courage to bring a resolution condemning Hamas in the UN and to get so many countries uh, supporting you. So I think that attitude of a proactive, and the cooperation was great, and I'm sure Ambassador Haley will assume important positions in the future and will continue to be a
0: strong friend of Israel. Ambassador Dino, I want to talk to you about a couple of uh, of other issues. Uh, one is UN-related, the, the Commission of Inquiry, which uh, will soon make its first report, uh, established by the UN Human Rights Council, not in New York, it's in Geneva, but it's part of the UN system. This is a, a commission that uh, will have 18 staffers, uh, a large budget um, chaired by uh, an individual who uh, is known uh, for uh, her um, uh, harsh uh, criticism of, of Israel. perhaps that's even an understatement. There's no shelf life for this commission. it's just open-ended. What do you see there is uh, on the one hand, we have the Abraham Accords, uh, which we hope will add additional members, uh, bringing in Arab states, uh, the UAE and Bahrain, Morocco, uh, the normalization of the Arab world with the state of Israel. And yet the UN seems to uh, just continue uh, with business as usual and has created this commission of inquiry. What do you say?
1: Well, I have zero expectations. You know, it's a waste of money and waste of time. We know it's gonna be a biased one-sided report. We should ignore that report. Uh, and we should uh, in advance prepare our allies uh, that you know, it's gonna be full of lies. You know, I, I know that we have a very moral uh, uh, military, and you know, at the UN I had a policy and I told it to my colleagues, whenever you have any criticism about uh, the morality of our soldiers, give it to me. Give me the exact information or incident, and I will get back to you with an answer. And, that, and it happened a lot. You know, I was I was getting the request, I was uh, contacting our my friends in the military, uh, I was deputy unit of defense, and I got responses, you know, immediate responses, and I got back to the ambassador. And I told them the exact details of each incident, what happened, who, who started the fight, what were, what were the real number of casualties. And, and many times, you know, I, I, I give you an example that sometimes, you know, when they used motors to attack our communities, some of the motors, actually did not cross the fence into Israel, and, and they killed innocent Palestinians. And they blamed us for that. And when I showed the evidence to that ambassador, he was shocked. He told me, listen, you know, I have to apologize for that. So it's an ongoing battle. We can answer for everything, and we will do it, but not with this one-sided inquiry committee.
0: No, it's going to be uh, just a star chamber proceeding uh, without again, without any limits. Uh, and um, many in our community have, have spoken out against it and will continue uh, to speak out against it. Another issue, um, there have been talks in Vienna to get the JcpoA, the the agreement with Iran um, back um, to where it was. Uh, the Trump administration left. The agreement in 2018. Uh, there seems now to be some question as to whether or not uh, there will be an agreement, at least imminently. Um, Iran's behavior, of course, continuous malign behavior continues unabated. Its uh, hatred for Israel uh, continues unabated. And it's nuclear program, uh, it seems, uh, is continuing in the same direction. What do you see as the future for that negotiation? I'm very worried about that.
1: You know, I, I can see the, the desire and the urge of the Biden administration to, to re-enter the agreement. It was a bad deal back in 2015. It's even worse today. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that uh, it, it will mean for us that we will have to rely only on ourselves. But uh, when you look at uh, the language of the agreement, basically, you know, it, it will allow Iran to continue with the nuclear ambitions. Uh, they will continue to lie to everybody uh, and it will uh, give us less legitimacy uh, to do whatever we have to do in order to prevent Iran from becoming nuclear. Let
0: me come back to the UN for a second. One of the things that you did during your tenure was to highlight the, um, the story of the Jewish refugees from the Arab world, from Arab countries, um, uh, who uh, were forced out uh, of the Arab world. Um, after after 1948. Um, tell us about that and why that's important.
1: So, you know, every year at the, at the UN, the Palestinians uh, have many, many events uh, marking the uh, the ref- Palestinian refugees, uh, and I thought, that, you know, we have to put the record straight, and we have to remind the world, the history, that there were more Jewish refugees uh, Leaving Arab countries than uh, Palestinians uh, leaving Palestine in 1948. Uh, you know, my family, my father's family left uh, Egypt, my uh, wife's family uh, left uh, Morocco, and they left beautiful communities behind. Uh, you know, property, uh, businesses, uh, no one speaks about them. And it's important to, to uh, set the record straight about the forgotten Jewish refugees to tell their stories. I don't think we want to demand, and I told it to my colleagues in the Arab world, we are not going to demand compensation. We don't have to ask for compensation. We are not coming back, but we have to set the record straight that people will be knowledgeable about it. And when I visited Morocco, you know, I visited the, the Jewish neighborhoods and the Jewish synagogues in order to make a statement that, you know, we will we, we cherish the heritage We remember what they left behind, and it's important for for the future when people speak about the Palestinian refugees to remember that there were more than half a million Jewish refugees leaving those countries.
0: Well, just a couple more questions. Uh, You're quite adept uh, at using traditional media and social media uh, as tools for promoting positive narratives uh, for the state of Israel. Um, as anti-Semitism spreads online, why do you think platforms like TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and others are also important in countering anti-Jewish hate and rising extremism? Well, we, we have to fight hate, and if you want to fight effectively,
1: you have to do it in, in all platforms. You know I have two teenager girls in, in my house then, and they always even though I'm very active on social media, uh, they always tell me, "Listen, you know, you you are not updated. You know, your videos are too long. Uh, we always have to invent ourselves and understand that you have uh, new uh, new mediums to to have a dialogue with the younger generation. That's why I think we, as a country, we have to invest more uh, in the capabilities of sending the messages out. Uh, you know, I in the last uh, conflict uh, last year we had in Gaza. You know, I appeared in, in dozens of, of media outlets uh, during the fighting, but it wasn't enough because at the same time, you had the social media and the videos. And I think, and I write about it in my book, in The Lion's Den, that I, as a government, we have to invest more and be more professional uh, in order to send messages fast and, and uh, to be accurate and to the point because sometimes we respond too late and, and then it's you, you lose you lose the fight when you respond too late.
0: Nope. In your book, you lay out a roadmap for Israel's future on the regional and global stage. Describe the plan as Israel enters this next phase of its existence in an increasingly global world. With, on the one hand, the Abraham Accords, we've talked about expanding opportunities for peace and stability in the region. And on the other hand, the growing menace of Iran, which um, through its malign behavior is threatening the entire region as well, not to mention, of course, terrorism. Uh, that uh, we've seen just in the last uh, month or so in in Israel. How do you see Israel's future from this point on? So first of all, I'm optimistic. I think we have a bright future ahead of us. You know, we
1: just celebrated 74 uh, short years of independence and look what we we achieved. So we should not take it for granted and we should continue forward. Uh, At the same time, I think we can do more supporting other countries other many developing countries we have a strong economy we have a lot of technology and know-how and i think we can and we should do more in terms of supporting other countries and more and more countries starting to, starting to realize that israel is not a problem it's actually the solution you know I, I led a delegation of uh, dignitaries uh, ministers and diplomats a few weeks ago we went to the uae bahrain and israel And actually, I I was shocked to see that they came to us uh, to ask for guidance, to ask for support. Uh, And I think the region, uh, despite all the complexity and the radical elements, uh, we can be a place so that we can actually uh, send out knowledge and support to other countries, uh, mainly developing countries. That should be our goal. But at the same time, and that's my main message of the book, that we should build more bridges and create more partnership, but at the same time, we should keep our independence and take the decisions by ourselves. Even if it means that we will have to take a decision against the US, against the EU, uh, we have to always keep uh, in mind that uh, we have the ability to protect ourselves and we should not take into consideration uh, requests or demands of others when it comes to our security.
0: Well, by shedding light on your time in New York at the UN, uh, what do you hope that Israelis, Americans, fellow diplomats, uh, and the general public will take away from In the Lion's Den? I think that uh, I want uh, everyone who cares about Israel, uh, first of all, to read the
1: book, uh, to to know what's happening behind the scenes of of diplomacy, uh, and to understand that uh, we can actually change. We can change uh, uh, a lot. Of the things that people think about Israel. If you come with the passion, if we respect our tradition, and if we reach out, you know, I reached out to many, many, many people, and not always it was successful, but when you're passionate and you reach out, you can actually change the world.
0: In the Lion's Den Israel and the World by Danny Danone and is available beginning May 17th from Amazon or wherever you purchase books. Danny, we really appreciate your time and your service to the state of Israel and the Jewish people. Best of luck with the book. Thank you very much, Dan. Well, if you're looking for more of our programming, visit our website, venebroth.org, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. Thanks to former Ambassador Danny Danone for joining me. And as always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear and you're in a podcast app already, hit the subscribe button to follow us. You can also listen to the show via the B'nai B'rith website. For my guest Danny Danone, and for B'nai B'rith, I'm your host, Dan Mary Ashen. Talk to you again soon.